I said before, it is good to be back. And uh, while I was away, I did have the privilege of preaching at a church in New Zealand, a place called Rotorua. Some of you may know it. Uh, it's a church where my our son and daughter-in-law attend. And um, also worshipped uh, another Sunday at Tauranga at Greerton Bible Chapel, where our son Carl is an elder there, and he was preaching that morning. So it was a joy to be feared. But here we are back um, in the Word here at New Community. And we're going to continue our series in First Timothy. We're going to pick up where we left off. And the title of my message this morning is The Warnings of False Teachers and the Love of Money because this is exactly what this section is about. I would have preferred to come back on a more of a positive um, theme but um, I'm not the one who dictates uh, what scriptures speak about and so um, endeavouring to be a faithful expositor of the text we'll pick up exactly where we left off uh, a month or five weeks ago. Let us open the scriptures at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and we will commence at verse 3 and we'll read through to verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and commencing at verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with with the doctrine conforming to godliness... He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And may God add a blessing to his holy inspired word. As we draw near the end of 1 Timothy, Paul, this veteran pastor, missionary, elder, church planter, continues to pass on not only personal advice learned through experience, but he continues to pass on God's truth, God's wisdom to this young church planting pastor, Timothy. Now most of the matters that Paul has raised thus far in this epistle that we've been looking at um, have been issues that were going down in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor at the time. Now, it's not that the Apostle Paul was always only ever about putting out theological fires. In other words, when something bad cropped up, 
that's when the Apostle Paul came in. It may seem like that at times, but it's not that he was always just about that. Because his continuing pursuit in writing all his pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which Alex is taking us through, the purpose of them was to set down patterns and principles for ministry and for life in every local congregation, for every culture, and for all time. And so what Paul says to these congregations in Asia Minor of the first century is equally applicable and relevant for us today. Now as we see in our text, Paul is not letting up on an issue that he has already raised in this letter. And that is the issue of false teachers and their teaching. Last time we were in 1 Timothy, Paul had a word in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter to members of the local Christian congregation back in Ephesus who were literal slaves. They were men and women who were owned by their masters. And he has a word to them about their attitude toward their owner masters. And we learned from this principles how our relationship or relationships in the workplace with our employers needs to be for the glory of God. We learned that, and we looked at some of those principles. But now in verses 3 to 10, Paul returns for the fifth time to speak and warn of false teachers. And because of that returning emphasis, it should tell us something of the importance of this real danger to any local assembly, local church. When something is always repeated, that's a good uh, hermeneutic. When something's repeated in Scripture, you sit up and take notice. So in order to see what Paul is driving at, uh, let me just briefly outline this passage for you this morning before we dig into the text. In verse 3, what we do see is what characterizes false teaching. And so Paul, what he does here in verse 3, he contrasts sound doctrine uh, with false teaching in order that the observant believer may discern the difference between the two. And then secondly, Paul shifts the focus in verse 4 from the character of false teaching, teaching to the character and habits of the false teachers themselves. Then following that, in verses 4 and 5, we will see a clear picture of the disastrous results in the assembly when false teachers and their teaching have it and their way in a local congregation. And fourthly, in verse 5, he will tell you how money is one of the key motivations of false teachers. It always seems to be lurking in the background, even though it's tried to be masqueraded with lots of other stuff. Money seems to be, Paul says, one of those key motivations, and which is true, as you might know and think, of many contemporary celebrity pastors, televangelists, and a word of faith movements today, right? It is true of many of them. And fifthly, in verse 6, we will see that material gain from Poseido godliness of the false teachers is contrasted with the great gain 
of real Christian godliness. And then finally in verses 7 to 10, we have Paul's sixth warning in this passage. Or principle that warns believers of a key root, a key root, not the key root, a key root of many kinds of evil in people's lives. So before we dig into the text, though, let me say that this passage is relevant to us all and no one is left off the hook, okay? So we all can stay awake and, and let no one say, hey, look, I'm not a teacher in any way, shape or form in the assembly, so this is totally irrelevant. That's where you're dead wrong. That's where you're dead wrong. And the reason why you would be wrong in thinking that is because as Christians, as believers, as those who love the Lord, we should want to and long for teaching and to be spiritually fed and nurtured on sound biblical doctrine. That'd be right. Okay? This means that we need to be able to discern between what is false and dodgy and what is sound biblical truth. We need to be able to discern that. And dare I say, because there is such an obvious lack of discernment on this very thing in much of the evangelical church today, we need these warnings that we have read like never before. So let me start with the first point for you this morning. Sound doctrine is a teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles which produces holiness. We see this in verse 3. It is true that so often the ideas and opinions of men and even denominations are gullibly viewed as developers or the makers of truth. Whether this be in the area of morality or theology, it seems that God's truth at times is up for grabs and can be redefined by cultural whims or mere men's opinions. That seems to be the spirit of our age and sad to say, even in the evangelical church today. It also seems we live in an age where people love to come up with something new in which to offer the church. Whether it be new ideas about heaven and how to get there or about being right with God or new ideas about what marriage is or, or gender equality in the government of the church, there is new stuff on offer all the time like never before today, right? But folks, we don't want new stuff, do we? We shouldn't. As Bible-believing Christians, we don't want and don't need new stuff. We want sound doctrine. We want sound words. We want and need sound words spoken by God through the apostles. We want apostolic words. We want the words and teachings of Jesus Christ. We want the same old story that Jesus preached, the same old story that the apostles preached. That's what we want, and that's what we need. We want and need nothing new, nothing developed and made up by men. Because it's only sound words, those spoken by Jesus Christ and the apostles, that produce what? That produce godliness or holiness. It's only those words that do that. All else... 
All the new stuff will only fill your head with mere speculation, but it will never ever change or transform our lives from within, like the sound words of Jesus Christ and the apostles. That's what sound words do. They transform our lives as we receive the truth from God. And we see that transformation as it is lived out in our lives as we commit ourselves to Christ. And Paul points this out in order that the people sitting in the pews can contrast false teaching from sound teaching. Now back in Timothy's day, what was going down was that there were false teachers around, and so like today, who were claiming to have a special revelation from God that the, even the anointed apostles that they knew of then had not received. They had something new to offer to God's people, so-called. They even claimed, and this is learned, by the way, from extra-biblical writings that we have on record uh, today, of, in that time, they even claimed that Jesus communicated to them by the Holy Spirit truths that were key to living and, and church, etc., and to live a successful and a blessed life. They offered brand new stuff. They offered a new and new revelations. So these false teachers with their Poseidon revelation, they came to the church and offered them this new teaching that the people had never heard before. Wow! And some of the assembly, some of the church, some of the ordinary folk of the assembly sitting under this teaching were gullible enough and lacked the discernment to differentiate this new stuff from the sound truth from God. You know, it's amazing how fickle and gullible we can be at times. It really is. Speaking to Christian friends a couple of weeks ago in New Zealand, we've known them for many, many years and enjoyed many times of fellowship with them to certain levels. And the lady excitedly told us halfway through our time there of how when her and her husband were at a conference and a woman whom she had never seen or met or knew before came up to her. Now, let me remind you, this should have been the first warning. Okay, This should have been the first warning. Like I mean to say, if someone that you never knew or known before comes up and says something to you, you kind of weigh it up. Well, anyway, this woman came up to her and and uh, said words to this effect. I have had a word from the Lord, and he has told me that you will be a witness and as an apostle to many people in the days to come. Now, what in the world would you do with that? Well, this intelligent yet naive woman took it all in and is still taking it all in as gospel, as truth. Something new and it excited her senses. She may feel good about herself. I don't know why, but she's taken it on board. This brand new counterfeit revelation. But Paul says, listen up here, folks. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, listen up. I want to contrast my teaching with that kind of stuff. My teaching, by contrast, is the old, old story 
I have absolutely, Paul says, nothing new to tell you. What I have to tell you is what Jesus has told you. What I have to tell you is what all the other apostles, the apostles had to tell you. Because we didn't make up our teaching as we moved along day by day. We got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. We got it from the Word. We preached the Bible, Paul says, which is God's revelation of who He is and of His will and of His ways and the way of salvation, the old, old story. We don't have any new secret teachings to bring to you. We preach the old, old story for it is ever new, right? False, folks, sound doctrine, Paul is saying, is in accord with Jesus' teaching. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know that all the epistles, all the epistles, the letters of Paul and, and, and the other writers and John, all the epistles are expositions and developments of truth inspired by the Word of God, given them to by, by God on the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus. Oh, yes, they are. Apostle Paul says to the Colossian believers in Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the idea of let the words of God in other words let the whole of Bible which is the words of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words to be at home in your life and to take them on board. You see sound words do not lead to speculation. Sound words do not lead to, lead to divisive argument. They lead to godliness. It produces, sound words produces a life which is in accord with God's word. So the first principle we see here that sound doctrine is a teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles which produce godliness. Second point. False teachers are full of hot air and ignorance. Now, you may think that harsh, but bear with me. Bear with me, okay? This is Paul's idea, as told to him by God. So, bear with me. We see this in verse 4. He's not, hasn't, Paul hasn't finished yet, because what he does in verse 4 is he describes what characterizes the false teachers. He, he, he's, he's spoken of what characterizes false teaching, and now he will characterizes his teachers themselves. He says that, that those who don't teach sound doctrine are conceited and understand nothing, but it has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Now, the word conceited is an interesting word. It's an interesting word. We don't associate it with what it means in our English, but the word in the Greek that we have translated conceited, comes from a root word meaning a puff of smoke. That's what it means. A puff of smoke. You know what happens to a puff of smoke? In other words, these people in contemporary terms, they blow a lot of smoke and they're full of hot air. That's what it means. So Paul cites three things that are characteristic of these false teachers. They were prideful, they were ignorant, and they had a preoccupation with obscure things. Yeah, folks, how often do we come across this? 
How often do we come across this? You know, we don't have to read the ramblings of Joseph Smith of Mormonism or Charles Russell's of the Jehovah's Witnesses to see this blatant, smoke-puffing ignorance. No, we don't. It easily finds, sad to say, the way into the evangelical church. Oh, yes, it does. Kurong Bookstore has screeds of evangelical writers who want to make themselves known who want to make a name for themselves, who want authority over those who are gullible and to seduce them by their cooked-up Christian ideas. But because they cook up their own teaching, well, they borrow it from the devil, really. They don't cook it up themselves. All they show is they don't understand the real fundamentals and the basics of Christianity, true Christianity. Though they profess to be smarter than everybody else, they really do not understand the fundamental truths of God's grace in the gospel as revealed in the word of God. And there, here Paul calls them, as, he calls them out as we should call them out. Conceited, ignorant, smoke blowers, full of air, hot air, they are false teachers. Another thing that often characterizes them is that they are forever fixated on controversial questions and words. You ever notice that? It can brush up onto us too. We need to be really careful about this. In other words, they always want to home in and speculate about some obscure word or perhaps an isolated verse, be it about end times or be it even about God's grace and faith. And you know what happens when they do that? They miss the wood for the trees. They miss the forest for the trees because they they hone in on a tree and they miss the big picture of God's redemptive story. They love to spout off about the obscure and they fail to see God's big redemptive picture. These people are prideful, they're ignorant, and in spite of how well they come across, and my word, they come across well. I heard one on for a... I couldn't stomach it any longer for about 20 seconds on TV this morning. They come across well. You know what Paul calls them? He calls them smoke blowers and full of hot air. Okay, thirdly, false doctrine produces personal ungodly behavior and disunity in the assembly. We see this at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And so looking at the end of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5, we see what false teaching produces it says there arises envying strife abusive language evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth in other words false teaching will lead to personal ungodliness and division in the church family that's what it does Now, this is not to say, don't get me wrong here, this is not to say that none of us should ever struggle with biblical truth. Because there's biblical truth I still struggle over to understand. Because we know at times that we need, I believe, to wrestle with God's truth. What for? In order to live by it. And so we need to wrestle with the text. We need to dig in. We don't want to just brush over it and say, oh, well, I'll just listen to what this guy says and believe what he says. 
I'm not saying that, that that's what we should do. My point here is that we need to be concerned with learning God's truth and even struggle with it. Why? So that we can argue our point better with maybe someone in the church or someone outside or wherever. Or so that we can have an intellectual edge on some theological matter that we've got it nailed down. No, it's not that at all. We need to struggle if we need to struggle to learn God's truth so that our lives, our personal lives, are transformed and changed by it rather than just giving us a prideful intellectual edge over our fellow brethren. We need to be changed by it. Because God's truth is what? It's all about our transformation, folks. That's what it is all about. It's all about evidencing itself in our lives toward one another in the local assembly. It's all about building one another up in the local assembly, never ever tearing it down or causing any kind of division, be it small or be it great. But that's what any false teaching does. It divides. It causes dissension. It produces envy and strife and abusive speech. It does not produce godliness. It will always fail in producing glory to God in our personal lives and in the life of the corporate church, the assembly. False teaching of any kind, in any amount. You know what it's like? It's like a disease. An infectious disease that that takes hold of someone or or a small group and and then it begins to rub off onto others as they come in contact with it. It never unifies Only the sound words of God can do that. Fourthly, material gain is often what motivates false teachers. We see this in the second part of verse 5. There used to be a worldly saying that went like this, money makes the world go round. You ever heard of that? Money makes the world go round. And, um, well, we could equally say money keeps false teaching thriving. Because that's what the Apostle Paul comes right out and says as a warning here in this text. He tells us that money is one of the key motives behind the drive of false teachers. He says that they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And by that he means that these men suppose, these false teachers suppose that godliness or, or, or being a minister, being a pastor, being an evangelist or whatever is a way of filling their pockets. Not only his, but even they would purport the pockets of those who hear him and listen to him and obey him. These false teachers think they're going to get rich off the gospel, and often they do. Some very, very wealthy men, you will know, I'm not going to name them this morning, there are many to name, who are so-called ministers of the gospel, and they fly around in jet planes, personal jet planes, and they have millions. A bit like Balaam, remember Balaam? He was so ignorant that the Lord had to use an ass to speak to him. He loved the wages of righteousness, the scripture tells us. Unrighteousness, sorry. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Or or like Simon. Remember Simon the sorcerer? 
He's a great example of a greedy false teacher. These are men who desired to get rich off Christianity. Paul is saying they're motivated by a desire for material gain. You know, we need to look for that. We need to look for that. Whether it be in a local church or whether it be in a parachurch ministry or whether it be uh, what we watch on television or on the internet. What is driving these people? This is why I love the local church. See, you can kind of look into my life a whole lot more than you can look into the life of Joel Osteen or, or any of these other megastars that are out there. We only know what we hear and it's all second hand. But man alive, you're up face and close and personal. You come into my home, you know me personally. And, and so uh, oftentimes that's a, a good reason to belong and to be part of a local church. False teachers abound today who draw from the purses of hundreds of thousands of gullible followers through teaching a false gospel. You know what the most prominent false teaching in the church today by celebrity pastors and televangelists? You know what they tell millions? They tell millions that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about you being physically healthy and materially wealthy. I heard even some of it this morning. Not in that exact those words, but I heard that. They say that if you're not there yet, by the way, if you're not there yet, if you're not materially wealthy and physically healthy, if you're not there yet, you need more faith. Or you need to be more financially generous to the one who's preaching to you. Folks, Paul makes it quite clear here. This is not what true Christianity is all about. He tells us that the kind of gain that the true gospel brings is very different than what they put forward and think the gain is. That brings us to our next point. The true gospel does bring great gain, but not the kind that some look for. We see this in verse 6. When Paul says in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, he's using, can I say, his sanctified sarcasm here. Paul's allowed to do that because he's inspired by God. And, and he uses this to highlight the real, true and eternal gain that can be had as a believer when accompanied with contentment. In other words, Paul says, yes, the gospel does actually bring great gain, but it's not the kind of gain that the false teachers are on about. And that's pretty relevant even in our day and age, isn't it? Often false teachers will teach you that health and wealth gospel as being super new and radical above all other gospel truths that you have ever heard about. In other words, they teach it as this is something new. Yes, yes, believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But you need something more. You need something new. You need to go to the next level. If you haven't got what we're talking about, you haven't made it yet as far as being a successful Christian. But really, wanting something more is not very new and not very radical, is it? It's not very radical at all. Really, this wanting something more and going to the next level or whatever expression you want to put to it, it's, it's only pandering to the already set in place whims of our flesh. And we all know about that, don't we? 
It's pandering to our fallenness. It's pandering to the spirit of the age. And that's not the Holy Spirit either. Wanting something more than what you already have is not radical. What's really radical is what the Apostle Paul is saying here because it's what Jesus is saying. The gospel does bring great gain, but it's not the kind of gain that false teachers are talking about. It's the kind of gain that comes with contentment because the gospel is about believers who, being saved by grace, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they take up his cross and they follow him. They, they will suffer for him. And they will live for his glory no matter what. They will serve one another in the assembly no matter what. Now, that's radical, being a servant. That's radical. Gospel brings gain as we are contented with the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else gives contentment like that, folks. The world and false teachers, you know, they are whispering a whole lot of stuff in our ears, right? We hear it every day. But it's never, it is never to be content. Do you ever notice that? It's never to be content. Everything is screaming from false teachers to, to the media to everything. The world is screaming, you need something more. Don't be content with what you have. You need this or you need that. You need more, you need more. And when you go in for the more, you realize it doesn't fill the void that's there because you need more. That's what the world screams at us. And so Paul makes clear that the gospel will always only foster a gain that brings with it contentment like the world can never offer. So this means when the true gospel grips hold of you, you will be content and you will rest in the tender, loving kindness of God and be content in God's great provision. His great provision on earth with all those temporal things, but especially those spiritual blessings where we are blessed with all the blessings in the heavenlies. Nothing more to be given. No second blessing is coming. We're content with everything that has been given to us in Christ, no matter how much or how little you have here on earth. Oh, the gospel brings a great gain when we have a contentment like that. Amen. Next, we need to be warned about the pitfalls of loving money, and we see this in verses 7 to 10. This is the final warning that Paul gives us in this section uh, concerning the priority that loving money brings. And his warning is plainly this, that we're all to guard our hearts against this invasive and destruction weapon of Satan. He makes it clear that as we brought nothing into this world, we cannot take anything out of it. Either if you have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now, as you will all realize, as I realize, no believer is immune from having an over-exuberant love for money, no matter what or who we are. You can be broke and poverty-stricken. You can be a middle-class income earner, or you can be a multi-millionaire and still 
in every single category have a sinful, excessive love for money. It's simply wanting something that you do not have and being convinced that if you get what you don't have, you will be satisfied. And so therefore I need money to get what I don't have because it will bring me satisfaction. It will not bring you satisfaction. Folks, we all struggle with this at some time and to some degree or other, every single one of us. And I believe we'd be lying if we said that we don't. One commentator said of our Western world, we have so much we are inclined to forget the one who has given us what we have. And we are inclined to enjoy the things we have received from his gracious hand more than we enjoy him. How true that is, folks. How true that is. And the writer goes on to say, we are tempted to view him, that is God, as a means to get what we really want which are things that we think will give us satisfaction and fulfillment. And instead of loving God and using the world, we use God to get the world, which we love more than God, unquote. And it's because we live in one of the most affluent cultures in the world it is imperative that we be on guard against this inordinate love of money. Notice two things here though, that Paul does not say that the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people get that wrong. The King James uh, translation says the root of all evil. Uh, and that is a good translation if you understand the, what the word all mean here because what Paul does here, he inserts one of the alls of the scripture that does not mean every last one, you know what I mean? What it means here is every category, all sorts, all kinds of evil. Alex brought us to attention when he was back in Titus 2.11 when it speaks of all men. And he clarified that. very. This is one of the alls where Paul did not mean and does not mean all every single one but all sorts, all categories. So he says here that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. When your heart and desire is firmly fixed on things and material blessing, when your desire and goals are centered on getting satisfaction and security through the things that money buys, you are in big trouble. Why? Because simply this, God wants us to depend on him. You know, when it comes to Gus Church getting a building, I don't believe money is the first problem. I honestly don't. Money is not the problem. Money comes, money goes. That's not the issue. God's will and God supplying us a building is us depending on him. He wants us to love him and use the world. It's okay to use the world. 
That's why we need to, there's a, I've just forgot the text that tells us that we can take a lot of lessons from the unregenerate, how they actually use the environment and the world and to make money, etc. And so we are to use the world to bring about God's purposes in our lives. So he wants us to love him and use the world, not use him and love the world. Many other routes that could lead to sin and destruction. As you know, like pride and lust and envy. But here Paul is saying that the love of money is the root of all kinds of sins, all kinds of evil. Secondly, note the shocking consequences for many of those who do have an excessive love of money. You see that in verse end of verse 10? Shocking. It says, Some by longing for it, that is money and wealth, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wow. That, that is a, a soul-shuddering, fearful verse to read that. It, this warning, folks, should haunt us while living in this give-me-more culture. I cannot help think again of, of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them. Simon the sorcerer. Judas Iscariot, all of these people through an ardent love of money sold their souls to misery and destruction. Then there was the rich young ruler. Remember him, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he chose possessions over the eternal life that Jesus offered to him. And what was the result? He went away sorrowful, the scriptures tell us. He went away sorrowful. He chose to serve money and the material possessions rather than God. This man chose to find his contentment, his satisfaction, and all those things that his money could buy. And with great sorrow, he left the Savior's gracious offer of eternal life and eternal security and satisfaction for what? To pursue temporary things that are here today and gone tomorrow. My dear people, who and what do we love? May we first and foremost love God with an undivided heart as we use the world and his provisions in it. May we never use the Lord as a means to excessively love the world. Paul in this section not only tells us how to detect false teaching, but he tells us how to search our own hearts to see if we love God more than, the love, than we love the things that he gives us. May God continue to challenge each one of us on these matters here this morning, shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we come to you with humble hearts this morning. Your word has been read and Father, we, we are humbled by the fact that so often the flesh that we have yields to the temptations that are bound around us. But Lord, increase our love, increase our faith, increase our dependence upon you. This is a work of your spirit in us. We pray that that may come about as we commit ourselves to Christ more and more and that will be seen in 
our taking up your word and reading it, it will be seen in our prayer life at home and here in this church. It will be seen in so many ways. Oh Lord, help us. Strengthen us, we pray. May we be men and women. May we be a church that is marked by those who depend on the Lord. So help us in this, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.